and welcome to another episode of the NBCSports.com College Basketball Talk Podcast. It is Thursday morning, October 11th. My name is Rob Dalton. I have a good show on the way for you today. I was joined by my colleague at NBCSports.com and the beat writer for Iowa State for the Interview, Travis Hines. And we are going to walk through every single team in the Big 12 and talk to you about what they have coming back what they lost, what their prospects are for the season, and what the hierarchy is going to be for the Big 12 Conference this year. It's a good conversation. I think you're going to enjoy it. As always, I have to make the usual ask, please rate, please review, please subscribe to this podcast in any app that you listen to podcasts in. If you like what you hear on this show today, throw us five stars, say some nice things. It really does help us within the metrics, within the rankings, within the numbers, All that stuff helps. So if you do enjoy this podcast, help us out. Give us a rating. Give us a review. We would appreciate it. And now let's get into that conversation with Travis Hines. And now let me welcome on my colleague at NBC Sports and our resident Iowa State hater, one Mr. Travis Hines. Travis, what's going on, man? How you doing? I'm doing well. Am I the hater or the homer today? I can never keep straight which which way I go there with Iowa State. I normally think you're the homer, but according to everybody that mentions me on Twitter, you are actually an Iowa State hater. So we're going to go with hater today. That's fair. I'm just got to make sure I got my persona right for this podcast. You got to stay on brand. I do. All right. Before we actually dive into this Big 12 preview uh, I do want to ask you, what are your overall thoughts on the league? You you cover these teams up close. Well, obviously, you're the Iowa State beat writer for the Ames Tribune, but uh, you see all of these teams play up close every single season. What are your overarching thoughts on the conference, on the league as a whole? And, uh, yeah, just give me some some kind of big-picture, top-down thoughts. Yeah, I mean, every year it's kind of the same thing. Hey, the league looks really great, but no one's probably going to beat Kansas, and I don't think that's any different this year, I think. The biggest difference for the conference this year is that it doesn't even seem like anyone's really talking about teams that could potentially upset Kansas and stop this 14-year run of league titles. And I think that's probably fair when you know we had in our way too early preseason top 25 Kansas number one. And I don't know that we had another Big Ten or Big 12 team in the top 10. So there seems to be separation from this Kansas team from the rest of the league. But I still think the rest of the league's strong. It's more. It, it's a two-fold, double-edged sword here. Kansas is really good, and the league sh- it, the league should be, in my opinion, as a whole, kind of embarrassed that they've allowed the Kansas to run roughshod over them for 14 years now. But at the same time, they've been the number one Ken Palm league for five years in a row. Um, they've been top three for, I want to say, the last 10 or 15, which you know, when you look at since the, the realignment when they went down to 10 teams, they've been number one, I think, five out of those six years or whatever it's been. So the league is really strong. I think it will be this year, too, when you've got Kansas State bringing everybody back from that Elite Eight. I think West Virginia is going to be really good. TCU is a team I like. Um, we'll see what Texas is. But there, there is strength in the league. It's just not competitive in the sense we all know who's going to win it. So I don't – it's hard to kind of judge. I, mean, I guess it's in the, the – the beauty is in the eye of the beholder here on what you think of the Big 12. You know, I think it's I think it, two things can be true at once that Kansas is far and away the best league, but that or best in the league, but the Big 12 is still strong, um, you know, from 1 to maybe 7. Yeah, it just feels like every other team in the conference that is good is kind of in that going to be a 4 to 5 to 6 seed instead of having another team that might be able to push Kansas uh, at the top of the conference or 
you know, maybe another team that can sneak up into that two seed line. And honestly, I don't even know. We'll, we'll get into this with with each team that we break down, but I don't know who else in this this conference that you can really say like has a super high ceiling. You know, maybe if something works out, we kind of let me phrase it like this. I think we kind of know what everybody in the league is going to be and what their ceiling is going to end up being. I don't think that there are necessarily uh, going to be any surprises. You think that's fair? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a couple of candidates, but I don't think it's where you circle them and go, okay, this will be the team. I just think, and it may be Kansas State bringing all five guys back. It's like uh, the Super Friends or you know Captain Planet, where you put them all together and they're be- the whole is better than the sum of their parts. Uh, but otherwise, yeah, I just I don't think there's anybody that's going to jump up and be uh, a top two or three seed, uh, like you said, which you know. Again, beauty is in the eye of the beholder on how good you think the league is if that's not the case. Even Kansas State, I have some question marks about them. 100%. Uh, but we can get into that in a little bit. For people that don't haven't listened to one of these yet, what we are going to do is go through every team in the conference in order alphabetically and just kind of walk through who's coming back, who's still on the roster, who's gone, what freshmen do they have coming in, and, and kind of what the expectations for each team is going to be. I'm going to start things off. Uh, with the Baylor Bears, and honestly, I think it's going to be something of a rebuilding year for Baylor this season. They lost their top four scorers from a year ago. Manula Compt, Joe Lawal Chul, Terry Maston, and Nunioma are all gone, and that kind of puts Scott Drew in a tough spot. Uh, he does have a couple of vets back in their backcourt with King McClure and Jake Lindsay returning, and the addition of Grad transfer point guard Makai Mason from Yale should be able to help them out, assuming that Makai Mason's foot is actually still attached to his body. I don't think we've seen him play in two seasons, uh, so there's no guarantee of that. But for people that have forgotten, Makai Mason was the point guard of the Yale team that was a 12 seed that upset number five Baylor in the 2016 NCAA tournament that created the video of a reporter asking... Uh, who was that? Was that um, what was it? Prince Torian uh, Prince Torian Prince? Uh, how a team like Yale could rebound the ball? And Torian Prince's response was, "When they shoot it and they miss, and you grab the ball, that's a rebound." And they got more of those. So one of the greatest moments in the history of NCAA tournament press conferences was created directly by Makai Mason because he beat Baylor, and now Makai Mason is on Baylor. And honestly, like that might be the most interesting thing about this Baylor team this season because I just. I, I just don't really see it, man. If they're going to get back to the heights that Scott Drew was kind of set as an expectation for his program, they're going to need a big year out of uh, Mario Kegler, and they're going to need a big year out of Mark Vidal, and they're going to need Flo Thamba, not to be confused with Mo Bamba, to kind of step up and be that guy that can anchor their zone. It feels like Baylor's best teams always have some big seven-footer in front of the rim. That, that lets them kind of play that two three weird like one one three two three zone that they play and do it effectively. So, I think my bold prediction here is going to be that they finish in the bottom three. They are right there with both of the Oklahoma schools in my mind as the bottom three teams in this conference, <clears throat> and I think that they finish closer to last place than they do to five hundred. What did I get wrong? No, I think you're right. I, I'm not really high on Baylor this year. I I think. Other than Makai Mason, though, the most interesting thing about Baylor is kind of how the the script has been flipped with Scott Drew. Where you look at early in his tenure when he had, you know, going to Elite Eights, that that was a, he 
his reputation was as an underachiever. And now I'm looking at the rosters that they've had the last few years, and I think it's almost where he's become an overachiever, where they're not getting those high-level stars and still winning games. So that that would be the only reason, if I was a Baylor fan, I'd hold out hope that somehow Scott Drew has gone from kind of the poster child for underachieving with talent um, to being, you know, I think fairly thought of now as maybe a little bit of doing more with less uh, there in Waco. Yeah, it's kind of funny. He's one of these guys that we all talked about how underrated he was as a head coach for so long that he's almost reached the point where I don't want, I don't know if calling him overrated is unfair and it's probably a little bit too strong, but we've reached the point where he is certainly no longer underrated as a head coach, at least in the mind of people that aren't here for the Scott Drew can't coach jokes. Yeah, I think I mean there's just his he's had such an interesting career. I feel like it's been a really a roller coaster ride of what his perception around the country has been. Although I would imagine most casual fans uh, still are here for the uh, Scott Drew can't coach jokes, and I'll never forgive Gary Parish for com- uh, comparing him to Nickelback because that's all I can think of <laughs> anymore. Whenever we talk about Scott Drew's coaching ability, that really was you know uh, GP has had a. Uh, I'm going to say moderately successful because I don't want to kiss his ass. He's got a big enough ego as it is. He's had a moderate, moderately successful career, but really that is like his crowning achievement is finding a way to compare Scott Drew to Nickelback. It's first line in the obit stuff right there. Exactly. All right, let's move on. Travis, tell me about the team that you love to hate, the Iowa State Cyclones. Yeah, so Iowa State, that's the team that I cover every day for the Ames Tribune. So uh, I guess depending on your perspective, I either uh, – you know, see what could go right or up too close to see the wards. But last year was the first year since 2011 that they missed the NCAA tournament. And frankly, they just weren't very good. And they've had, they had some off the court issues that I think uh, were problematic. Um, But really they just didn't have the talent level, certainly not to get back to the NCAA tournament and really uh, not even to compete night in and night out in the Big 12. I think that'll be the biggest change for Iowa State this year is that you're not going to be able to talk about um, the talent disparity between them and the rest of the league. They've got talent really across the roster and certainly the deepest roster, not the best, but the deepest roster that Steve Prohm has had uh, now in his four years in Ames. The headliner of that is Lindell Wigginton, um, who is a scoring machine, It'll be interesting to see how that translates for a team that can, you know, theoretically win some games. But he, him coming back, he waited till about the eleventh hour to decide whether or not to go pro or return to Ames. But his decision to come back, I think, really elevated the ceiling for Iowa State. Cameron Lard is a guy that probably doesn't get en- talked enough about, uh, but is extremely talented, but also a little troubled off the court. Uh, got cited for drug possession that was or drug paraphernalia possession excuse me that charge was dropped um was underage in a bar and had some other just minor dust-ups uh that ultimately led him to spending the summer off campus at a wellness center but he's back and when he's good he is to my mind maybe the best big man in the big 12 he's a double double machine block shots runs the floor um if he can you know, stay on the straight and narrow and play with purpose. I think he's a guy that we'll be talking about uh, come the middle of winter. Um, they also got Marielle Shayok from Virginia, who sat out last year as a transfer. Michael Jacobson from Nebraska um, coming in, as well as maybe the best recruiting class, at least in terms of rankings, that Iowa State has ever had. Uh, Taylor Horton Tucker was a guy that was a late riser and you know went all the way to a top 50. Kansas got involved. Iowa State thinks he can be a star. He's He's a little bit of an unorthodox player with his size and skill set, but he's a bucket getter, and Iowa State is super excited 
about him. And then there's uh, kind of, again, another underrated guy probably because of how poorly Iowa State uh, did in the win-loss record last year is Nick Weiler-Babb. He didn't get a triple-double last year, but he was within a rebound or a couple of assists oh, probably a dozen times last year as a 6-6 point guard. Uh, just kind of does everything. Swiss Army knife. Um, so Iowa State's got some talent. I mean, they they should be able to compete for a upper five or a top half finish in the Big 12 this year. The, the question marks are shooting. Wigginton's really the only guy that's proven that he can make threes on this roster. Um, and then leadership. That was an issue last year. Um, and the roster hasn't changed enough to where you have somebody you can point to and say that's the guy. Uh, that's going to lead them if things get rough. So those are the two questions. But I think when you look at the talent level, when I'm trying to make a bold prediction, I think that you have to lean towards Iowa State over achieving against expectations. So I'm going to say if there is a surprise team in the Big 12 that's better than they will be uh, prognosticated to in the preseason, it's Iowa State, and maybe they mess around and get a top four, maybe even top three finish in the Big 12. Yeah, I'm I'm with you there. I really like the talent on this roster, and I think that it fits with the way that Iowa State's played in the past, right? Like they like to get out and run and get up and down. You got a bunch of guys that really like to score. You have a lot of perimeter pieces on this roster, and it doesn't seem like there's anybody that actually really has a desire to try to play any defense. Correct me if I'm wrong there, but it just it seems like this is going to be the kind of team that plays a lot of games that end up being 95 to 90. And that's a good thing. I like games like that. You know, defense is a little bit overrated. So, um, as someone who has to watch like thirty-five of their games, I'm I'm down for that. the The one thing is, I wonder how you know Mariel Shyock is a redshirt senior that's transferred in from Virginia. He spent three years playing under Tony Bennett, and it seems like he should, at least on paper, be the kind of guy that can fill a leadership void. I don't know if that is something that is actually uh, going to come to fruition. Uh, but it, it feels like that, like, like he's the guy that should be able to do that. But you know, transfer and then a guy that I don't even know, like if he'll start for them. So that, I think that makes it tough. Yeah, it does. Um, but yeah, to your point, I do think that this is a team with top four upside. Although I don't think they get there. In my mind, there is Kansas at number one. Then there's three other teams in Kansas State, TCU, and West Virginia, and then Iowa State. And Texas Tech, for me, are kind of right there in that 5-6 spot. One of them is going to finish fifth uh, in my mind, and I think that those are the two teams that if anybody has a chance to surprise, uh, I think it's those two teams. We'll get into Texas Tech later, though. Anything else to add on Iowa State? No, I think we covered it. All right, let's move on. I'm going to tell you guys about Kansas, who, as Travis alluded to earlier on, uh, is the number one team in our preseason top 25. And, and, and in my mind, they're the best team in the country. And I, I don't necessarily think um, it's their head and shoulders above anybody else. You know, I think Kentucky is right there. I think Gonzaga is right there. And I think Duke is right there. But when you combine the amount of experience and the amount of talent and the amount of uh, the, the, how much new new blood is coming into the program this year, it's kind of hard to – put anyone else in that spot for me and it's actually you made this point in your uh in the preview you wrote for NBC sports that's up on the website right now is that they've kind of like tapped into each of the three pillars in how to build a basketball program in 2018 they have the five star potential one and done guys and, and Devin Dotson and uh and Quentin Grimes and even you know Marcus Garrett coming back they tapped into the transfer market 
by going out and getting Dedrick Lawson and KJ Lawson and Charlie Moore, who were all sitting out last season. And they have the veterans that have been around on the roster for what feels like like nine years. You know, no one is quite as old as Perry Ellis, but Gerald Vick is right there. You know, you do look at Azubuki, might actually be 25 years old, even though he's only a junior. Uh, but he's back on the roster as well. So they've kind of done. You know, you look at Kentucky, and Kentucky builds everything through one of Duns. You look at Villanova, and Villanova builds everything through experience. And you look at, you know, maybe like an Iowa State, and they build everything through transfers. And Kansas has found a way to do all three of those things, and it has worked out pretty damn well for them. Um, I think Dedrick Lawson is probably going to end up being the key, and I don't think I'm really saying anything out of turn uh, by saying that. He kind of is that guy. For the first time in, in probably since Perry Ellis left, they have that guy that Bill Self loves, that kind of – Combo forward, uh, what would would have been considered a small ball four five years ago. Uh, Diedrich is a guy that's more of a face-up player. He's probably at his best from like 15 to 17 feet. He's not really a center, but he's not really a small forward. He's like a a, a, a tried-and-true foreman that's uh, kind of disappearing in today's uh, basketball game in a, in a way. And I think that he's going to be able to let Kansas run offense the way that they've wanted to run offense uh, before they were they they had their hand forced by not having any front court players the last two seasons. Uh, Yudoka Azubuki, as I mentioned, is back to kind of anchor the front line. As is LeGerald Vick, who has had his own off court issues, who declared for the draft, who went through the draft process but did not actually sign with an agent, and who, after he realized that he had no real professional opportunities decided to return to Kansas. I don't know if he's going to start. I think that Marcus Garrett will probably overtake him. Uh, He's a four-star top 35 kid that is going to be a sophomore um, that I expect to take a little bit of a step forward this season. Uh, It's going to be interesting in the backcourt. You know, they lose Devontae Graham, who was an All-American a year after they lost Frank Mason, who was the National Player of the Year. And now their point guard situation is going to be either five-star freshman Devin Dotson or Cal transfer Charlie Moore, uh, who is, you know, he's good. He's not great. And and Devin Dotson, as, as good as he has the chance to be, he is not one of these kind of point guards that can step in and take over right away. You know, he's not Tyus Jones. He's not somebody that is quite at that level. So, it's going to be interesting to see how that lead guard spot kind of ends up playing out. I think that's one of the most interesting positional battles uh, on this Kansas roster. I think Quentin Grimes finding his role is going to be what's fascinating to me more than anything. He's a guy that's a potential top 10 pick who was a, I believe he ended up being like the number eight prospect in the country somewhere like that. He's definitely a top 10 kid, a five-star player, potential one and done. Uh, he's like a combo guard that is more of a scorer at this point than he is a lead guard, um, but he's certainly somebody that can go out and get you 15 points a game. And there are people around the conference that think that he will actually end up being the best player on the Kansas roster by the time that it is, uh, it is all said and done. Uh, but when you combine it all, I think that this is a team that is deep. This is a team that is talented. This is a team that is balanced. And this is a team that has enough question marks as to who is going to start at certain spots that are going to be the kind of positional battles in practice that really uh, in my mind kind of bring the best like when you have when you don't know if you're going to be the starter you're going to be the eighth guy and you need to prove it in practice I think the the teams that have those situations end up doing a little bit better so um, I do think that they have that going for them as well 
And I don't think there's really any question that they're going to end up winning their 15th straight Big 12 title. But for me, the big question mark about this team is what happens off the court. You know, as we are recording this on Thursday morning, uh, Adidas fixer TJ Gasnola is currently in a courtroom in New York City testifying about, uh, among other things, how he helped give Silvio D'Souza $20,000 to go to Kansas because he had already taken $20,000 from presumably Under Armour uh, in an effort to get him to go to Maryland. So seeing how that whole situation plays out, did the coaching staff actually know that this happened? Was Silvio D'Souza ineligible? Is he going to be allowed to play next season? All that kind of stuff I think is going to be something that overshadows this team just a little bit during the year. Um, but I, in my mind, it's not something that is going to derail them. It's just going to be one of those storylines that we keep talking about uh, over and over and over again. But the larger point is I think that this is finally the year that Kansas has their Big 12 title streak snapped, but not because they don't finish first in the conference because Silvio D'Souza, who is going to eventually end up being ruled retroactively ineligible because he accepted the, that money, uh, I think their title streak is going to come to an end because last year's uh, win, last year's regular season title, is going to get wiped off the record books because Silvio D'Souza played in it. So, Travis, I don't know what you think happened in the Final Four last year, but Kansas did not make it to the Final Four. That never happened. Get ready to vacate all of those records. Louisville never won that uh, national title either. I never, like when I was 12 years old, Minnesota didn't make the final four and I didn't have the time of my life watching that. So sure, if you say so. Shout out to Bobby Jackson. Shout out to Bobby Jackson. Um, Anything else to add? Anything else to add about Kansas? No, I mean, I think, you know, the questions that I have is certainly that point guard position um, that you detailed. I wonder, I'm, I'm imagining Kansas will be able to make threes this year, but I think they've got to prove it. Uh, given who they lost last year and that we haven't seen it uh, from some of the guys on the roster. And then just maybe some chemistry issues when you're integrating that many new guys. And it seemed like, you know, Memphis obviously was a bit of a toxic situation, but it seemed like the Lawsons were always kind of at the center of that. Um, it probably helps that dad isn't on the staff. That probably uh, adds a layer that makes things difficult. Uh, but just see if Kansas can navigate all that with uh, especially all the off the court stuff. But you know, when it comes to the FBI investigation, I think it has to be something truly nefarious uh, would have to come to light for it really to make a dent um, in what Kansas is doing because it seems like they're always shrugging off any uh, allegations or whispers of impropriety and it never seems to really affect them the way that it maybe affects other programs around the country. I think that's all we got on Kansas. Travis, tell me about Kansas State. Kansas State, it's like the old Detroit Pistons um, of the mid 2000s, not anybody that you get super excited about, uh, maybe other than like Rasheed Wallace on those teams. So I got to shout out to my guy, Sheed ball. Don't lie uh, that you don't get super excited about, <laughs> but when you have everybody back from a team that made the elite eight, um, and plays really good defense, grinded out defense. Um, the, the ceiling may not be super sexy, but the floor is obviously really, really high. And I think if you look at that team last year with what they were able to do, in the NCAA tournament, that kind of changes the calculus of expectations because they were a good but not great Big 12 team. And then all of a sudden, they avoid somehow Virginia in the NCAA tournament and play the first ever 16 seed to make it to the second round. And next thing you know, they're a win against Loyola Chicago 
away from being in the final four. And that changes, I think, the way that we think about them, even though you know they were a middling offense and a pretty good but not great defense uh, last season. But you bring everybody back from that team. And when I say everybody, I mean li- literally everybody. Barry Brown, Carter Diara, uh, McComa Wine. Xavier Sneed, Kamal Stokes, and Dean Wade, who I think will be on a lot of people's preseason All-American list. Like that, that's everybody that they're bringing back. And I think continuity does count for something in college basketball. And it's not just continuity for continuity's sake. This is obviously a team that's won a lot of games and now has the confidence of an Elite Eight run to its name. So while we can't get, you know, I, Kansas State has to be number two, I think, in everybody's preseason Big 12 poll. Um, but... I don't know that anybody gets super excited about Kansas State. And I don't know that they care. I think Bruce Weber's team is just fine with that. I think they're secure in what they've done and who they are. And to that point, when I talk about bold predictions, the the way we talked about Iowa State where you have to lean one way or the other with the talent – I think it's more likely that Kansas under Kansas State, excuse me, underachieves rather than overachieves, and that's only because the only way they can really overachieve is by knocking off Kansas, and I and I don't think that happens. But their floor is super high, so I think like the worst thing that can happen to Kansas State, barring injuries, is they finish third or fourth in the Big Twelve, you know, one or two games behind maybe a TCU or West Virginia. So that's that's not really a bold prediction, but. Can you really make a bold prediction about Kansas State? I mean, they're, they're the least bold team probably in the league and maybe in the country. And I think, again, they're okay with that because they're going to be good and they're going to win a lot of games. But they're they're not exciting. So there's a lot about this team that is really fascinating to me. And let's start with this. Kansas State last year did not win a single game against a team that finished 500 or better again against Big 12 competition. They were swept by West Virginia. They were swept by Texas Tech. They lost all three games that they played against Kansas. And how about this? They split against TCU, who went 9-9 in the Big 12 regular season. But they also uh, Kansas State also beat TCU in the first round of the Big 12 tournament, which means that TCU last year went 9-10 against Big 12 competition. So Kansas State had not – the only teams that they beat in the Big 12 last year – finished under 500 against Big 12 competition. Then, throw in the fact that they they really did nothing in non-conference play. It's shocking how poor their non-conference schedule was. They beat GW, which, whatever. They beat Vanderbilt, which, whatever. They beat Washington State, okay. They lost to Arizona State, and they lost to Tulsa on neutral courts, which is not exactly covering themselves in glory. And they beat Georgia at home, which, you know, Georgia was just good enough last year to get their coach fired. So... It wasn't until March that this team actually did something that was super impressive. And part of the reason that they did something that was super impressive is because in the first time in the history of college basketball, a number 16 seed beat a number one seed, and that's who Kansas State played in the second round. Now, to their credit, Creighton was really good, and they beat Creighton. Kentucky, by the end of the season, was really good, and they handled Kentucky. But... They're really, we're talking about two games right there at the end of the year when Kansas State finally played like a team that looked like they should have been a top 25 team, right? There was at no point during the rest of the season where we have ever talked about Kansas State being a top 25 team. So that makes me wonder if you are bringing everybody back from a team that was like pretty good and, and, and but not more than pretty good then why are we all of a sudden expecting them to be like a top 10 team, right? Like, And I have them up there. I love Kansas State this year. I love the guards. I love Dean Wade. 
I love the way that they can defend. I love Barry Brown, the toughness he plays with. But I kind of question myself when I look at them and I'm like, well, they weren't good last year. And they're bringing everybody back from a team that really wasn't all that good. And now everybody is going to know how good they are because every time they play them, they're going to see that little number right next to their name on the ESPN graphic. So it it it, it got me thinking. And, you know, Bruce Weber has been on the hot seat basically for the last two years, right? They've been question marks since well, – well, they, lost they got blown out to, by Oklahoma in 2017 when Oklahoma was in last place in the Big 12. And I, that's, I thought that was February 2017. I thought that was the end of it. And then they snuck into the NCAA tournament, and he's it, kind of cooled his seat a little bit there. But it, I thought it was over at that point you know, a year and a half ago. Yeah, and, and the thing about being on the hot seat as a coach is you never really get off. You are one disappointing season, maybe even one disappointing game away from having that fan base turn on you again. You know, look at what happened with Tom Crean, right? Tom Crean was on the hot seat. Then he went out and he won the Big Ten regular season title in the year that he had Yogi Ferrell and was one of the most memorable seasons of Indiana basketball in recent history. And then the next season he went out and he was disappointing again and he got fired. And I think that we might be at that point with Bruce Weber, if only because now let's say that they don't end up being a top 10-ish team, they more end up being like a top 25-ish team and they finish 10-8 and eight in the Big 12 and they end up as another 6 or 7 seed and they get bounced in the first round of the tournament and they finish behind West Virginia and TCU in the Big 12 standings, right? That is a, a disappointing year based on what their preseason expectations were, but given what we know about this team, are we setting the expectations too high and is this kind of inflated discussion about what they should end up being this year is this the kind of thing that's going to put Bruce Weber in a bad spot if they only end up being closer to what they were last year instead of what we think they could be this season does that make sense am I talking myself in circles here you are but I think understandably because I think Kansas State is going to challenge a lot of the ways we think about college basketball because we look at the top of the the country and it's Duke and Kentucky with the high-end talent they don't have that but if we want to say continuity matters, age matters, then, you know, Kansas State has got to be up there too. But if you talk about, to your point, you know, small sample size versus large sample size, the big picture last year was really kind of mediocre for Kansas State. But then they go out and they go on this run in March and does winning matter? It is proven winning, proven winners matter when you're looking at a team. So I think they're a little bit of a funhouse mirror in that you can see a lot of different things with this Kansas State team, and it's going to challenge. It's going to prove a lot of theses right and wrong, I think, this year, just depending on how you look at the sport uh, because of just the way that roster's constructed and the way they've kind of risen to prominence. And, I mean, we also have to remember that they only scored 50 points against UMBC last year. Like So, like, they almost lost to that 16 seed. Like, it was touch and go down the stretch. Um, so there's – if you want to be a hater, it's not hard to be with Kansas State, but – I think, to me, just given the amount of continuity, even if they wouldn't have gone on that roll last year, let's say that they lose to Creighton in the first round and bring everybody back, you're probably still bullish on Kansas State. Maybe not top 15 bullish, but I think you know top 25 uh, for sure. Yeah, that, I think that's the reason why I have them as high as I do. But I really do like the way that this roster is built. I love the guards, like I said. And Dean Wade, get familiar with the name Travis. Let's move on. I'm going to talk a little bit about Oklahoma and you know, how do you have an encore to the Trey Young show? I just, 
I don't think that you can. You know, the entire reason that Oklahoma last season fell off a cliff in the second half of the year was that there just wasn't enough help for Young, and he struggled to carry that entire load by himself. And this year, with Trey Young playing, where, where is he? Is he in, he's in Atlanta, Atlanta. right? With, with Trey Young with the Hawks, they don't have Trey Young to carry the load all by himself. You know, Christian James is back. Brady Manick is back. Rashard Odoms is back. Uh, they lose a couple guys to transfer, but they do add a, a pair of grad transfers in Aaron Calixt and Miles Reynolds. Um, but I just, you know, I honestly just cannot see that being enough. And I have all the respect in the world for Lon Kruger. Um, and I think that he is a good enough coach to keep Oklahoma from being an absolute and total doormat this season. But uh, if you look at the talent on the roster, it, it just – there isn't all that much of it. And I guess I think that they are kind of locked into a bottom three spot in the conference. And my bold prediction is going to be that they finish with less than seven wins in league play. And I don't know if that's really all that bold, but I really honestly don't have all that much more to say about them. Yeah, it's definitely not that bold, but I think uh, they're going to be probably one of the two worst teams in the league. And I don't know how you escape that if you're, can or if you're Oklahoma uh, maybe if Baylor's worse than I think but it's just it's kind of the inverse of Kansas State they bring everybody back but would you rather just be starting from scratch if you're Lon Kruger um, and it'll be interesting to see what goes on long term there because Kruger is ha- putting together a nice recruiting class in 2019 so I think the upswing will probably be relatively quick there in Norman but you know they've they've undergone these downswings in his uh, tenure there after you know reaching some heights and last year went sideways on them obviously uh, pretty quick but you know they were the darling of college basketball there for a couple weeks uh, so I I think that they're going to be probably pretty bad this year um, but I don't think that their stay at the in the cellar will be too long uh, in the Big Twelve. All right, let's move on. Talk to me about Oklahoma State. If you didn't have much to say about Oklahoma, how am I supposed to have much to say about Oklahoma State? That's what I want to know because I was looking at this team. And I don't know that there's that much interesting to talk about. I think the one player maybe you got a little excited about um, that could make a difference for them would be Michael Weathers, the Miami of Ohio transfer. Um, And then he went out and got arrested on charges of felony grand larceny and stealing and concealing stolen property um, and is suspended indefinitely. So that kind of went out the window uh, in terms of what to get excited about at Oklahoma State which is is really too bad for Mike Boynton because I think he was one of the underrated good stories of last year. That Oklahoma State team probably should have been pretty bad, and it was a a bad situation where you have Brad Underwood leaving um, after one season for pretty contentious reasons with Oklahoma State basically just refusing to pay him at a level commensurate with what he deserved, with what he had accomplished, not only there, uh, but at Stephen F. Austin and the amount of other schools, as we saw with Illinois kind of poaching him, that he probably deserved. And then instead of going out and making a statement, they hire Boyton, who, you know, he could turn out to be a Hall of Fame coach, but he certainly didn't have a Hall of Fame resume, and he's not getting paid very much at o- Oklahoma State. So that felt like kind of a punt by Oklahoma State saying basketball is just not that important to us. And then Boyton went out and rallied that roster and nearly cut into the NCAA tournament with an 8-10 and 10 Big 12 record, but they lose so much off that team, including Mitchell Solomon, Jeffrey Carroll. Uh, yeah, Kuba Sima went pro uh, a year early, and there's just not going to be enough there to to replace those guys and, and be competitive in the Big 12. And then you add on top of it, uh, you know, their 
they've been prominently mentioned in this FBI probe of talking about throwing around 150 K uh, to Brian Bowen, eight grand for a car undisclosed for a house. Um, and Mike Boynton was on that staff when that was allegedly going on. The, the associate head coach got arrested and fired in Lamont Evans. Um, so there's, there's definitely some smoke there where you wonder how that's going to affect a, a young, presumably struggling team this year. So I guess I don't know how to come up with a bold prediction for Oklahoma State other than I think the bottom probably drops out and they finish a distant 10th uh, in the Big 12. I agree with you wholeheartedly, and I don't really have anything else to add. So let me talk about TCU now. The Horde Frogs, uh, they lost Vlad Brodzianski and they lost Kenrich Williams from last season's team, but I still think that this group has a chance to be the second-best team in the league, assuming that they... Uh, remain healthy, specifically that Jalen Fisher remains healthy. I think he's had, over the course of the last 18 months, three procedures done on his knees, and he just had one uh, recently that was going to hold him out for close to the until close to the start of the season. So if he can get healthy, then all of a sudden TCU might have the best backcourt in the conference. I don't know if that's saying a little bit too much, but the combination of Alex Robinson and Jalen Fisher is really, really, really good and really underrated. They averaged a combined 11.5 assists uh, last season, which in my mind is going to be why TCU will end up being probably the best offensive team in in this league, uh, at least from an efficiency perspective. You know, they have those two point guards. They're going to play them together. They're going to be on the floor with three guys that can shoot better than 43% from three. And they're going to run basically a ball screen heavy offense. And it's going to be a lot of fun to watch. You know, last year they finished ninth actually in, in, uh, in adjusted offensive efficiency, according to Ken Palm. And I expect them to finish right around there again this season, especially if two guys, Desmond Bain and Kowat Noy, I think I got that name right. Uh, if those guys step up and have big seasons, both averaged double figures last year, both shot better than 43% from three last season, and both are the kind of player that can step up and fill the void that Kenrich Williams left offensively. Um, so I, I do expect that, that TCU is going to be really, really good on that end of the floor again. I just I don't see... Assuming they stay healthy, I don't see how they fail. I don't see how they don't score a lot of points, how they don't make a lot of threes, how they don't run pretty offense, how they don't end up being one of those teams that finishes in that top 10 to top 15 range of uh, of offensive efficiency on Ken Palm. They're, they're going to be that good. The big question I have is going to be what happens defensively. I, I think that, you know, Brodzianski was a liability on that end of the floor at times. He wasn't great. And I think that any of the guys they have coming in, uh, whether it's you know Kevin Samuel, I think that's the the, the big kid's name, um, or uh, or one of the freshmen, Uat Olak is is that how you pronounce? I'm not sure. They, they got a lot of hard names on this team to pronounce. But the dude from New Zealand, yes, that's how you pronounce that. As long as those guys kind of step in and end up being. You know, just big bodies that can at least move a little bit. I think that they'll be able to fill the void left by Brodzianski on that end of the floor. It's not going to be hard for them to do. But Kenrich Williams was a guy that was a terrific defensive rebounder. He was he could guard up and he could guard down. He was one of the best playmakers they had on the defensive end of the floor. And replacing him is going to be a little bit more difficult. You know, they have Lat Mayen, they have J.D. Miller, they have a bunch of guys that are, you know even Noah can kind of fill. You can kind of slot him in that um, 
in that role. They have a lot of these guys that are like bigger wings, but not quite power forwards. And that's what Kenrich Williams was, but he was able to guard power forwards and he was able to, to, to get on the defensive glass and he was able to end possessions for him. Do they have the guys that can do all of those things again that will allow them to be as good as they are offensively without really taking too much of a hit on the defensive end of the floor? They already weren't great. They finished exactly 100th in Ken Palm's adjusted defensive efficiency metric. So as long as they stay as good as they are offensively and they can still get better, even if it's just incrementally on the defensive end of the floor, they have a chance to be really, really good. So my bold prediction is that they finish above Kansas State and they finish above West Virginia and they end up second place in the Big 12, a glorious season where they are a full four games out of first place after Kansas wins the league again. <laughs> I love TCU. I love what Jamie Dixon's doing there. And really, I like I love what the program's doing where they're investing into basketball because that should be or could be, I should say, a really good basketball school with where it's located in the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex um, and the way that Jamie Dixon has proven to be you know, an incredibly successful coach. I know things went sideways, you know, relatively speaking to expectations for him at Pitt. But I think we just saw uh, with the way that uh, the last few years have gone for Pitt, things are not exactly rosy at that job anymore. Um, and he's got TCU turned around immediately. And they can just shoot the hell out of it. And then you add the point guard back into the mix with Jalen Fisher, assuming he's healthy. Uh, and I don't think second place is remotely out of the question for them. I think that they could be really, really good this year. You know, they've got questions up front, um, but when you can shoot it to the way that they shoot it, and I think Fisher is an underrated point guard to run the show there, um, I think that their ceiling is really quite high. Travis, tell me about Texas. Texas, Texas, Texas. I mean, it's been uh, an interesting three years for Shaka Smart um, in Austin. I don't know how you look at it as anything – other than disappointing, and that's largely due to the level of expectations that I think followed him from VCU to the Longhorns when so many major programs had tried for so long to pry him away from VCU and couldn't do it. And then he finally makes the leap to a place as resource-rich as Texas, and things have just not gone exceedingly well there. And I think the pressure's on this year for Shaka Smart. Maybe not a 100-degree hot seat, but certainly people are paying attention to see what he can do um, with the Longhorns this year. And while they don't have, I think, that high, high-level NBA prospect uh, that he's had, like a Jared Allen or a, or a Mo Bamba in his first few years at Texas, you certainly can't call this team untalented. Um, and I wrote in the preview for today, they've got so many guys that you look and say, easily could say, oh, I'm, you're not going to be surprised when they end up on all-conference teams. You've got Matt Coleman, you've got Dylan Osikowski, Jericho Sims, who might end up being a pretty decent NBA prospect, Kerwin Roach. Um, all those guys are talented. And then you know, not even mentioning Andrew Jones, who obviously has bigger things to worry about than basketball as he continues uh, his fight against leukemia. But he continues a steady uh, return back to the court. He's practicing, he's enrolled in school, and, you know, it's hard to say what the likelihood of him seeing the floor this year, and certainly it pales in comparison and importance to him getting healthy. But just if he gets on the floor for Texas, he's a wildly talented player um, that could make Texas better if he's healthy. And then you add in a top 10 recruiting class, and then uh, Elijah Mitru Long, who averaged 15 points for Mount St. Mary's as a sophomore. He's the younger brother of uh, former Iowa State standout and uh, current Utah Jazz G League player, I believe. Uh, Naz Mitru Long. 
Uh, Texas should have the talent to to be in the top in the discussion for maybe a top three, top four, certainly top five uh, run in the Big 12. The question is, can they do it? Because I don't know that they've ever exceeded expectations uh, in Smart's first three years. And I think that's one of the more surprising things. If you would have asked people when Shaka Smart got hired in 2015 what the likelihood was of him underachieving relative to expectations, I don't think very many people uh, would have taken the under on that bet uh, but certainly, I think that's undeniably what's happened in his first three years. But uh, I, I think maybe this is the year that it turns around. Uh, but I think it's more interesting and maybe bolder to say it goes the other way. Because while they have a lot of talent, I don't know who the go-to guy is going to necessarily be. I don't know how well they're going to score the ball. You know, They'll play defense under Shaka Smart, but the offense has not exactly been pleasing to the eye. Uh, at times there in Austin. So I think if you're going to look at a bold prediction for Texas, it's that they underachieve and maybe uh, a Texas Tech or an Iowa State jumps up and then Texas is all of a sudden looking at something like a seventh place finish in the Big 12. Yeah, they're they're the one team that you kind of look at and say, okay, they could end up finishing eighth and I wouldn't really be all that surprised and they could end up finishing second and I wouldn't necessarily be all that surprised. To me, they're the one team in this conference where it's really difficult to kind of say what they can end up being. I honestly think it's probably going to be closer towards the bottom half of the league than the top half of the league. You know, they they couldn't shoot at all last season uh, once they lost Andrew Jones. And I don't necessarily see that changing because from my understanding um, is that I'm not quite sure if Andrew Jones is going to end up getting cleared. Uh, The last that I had heard is he still had some um, hurdles that he needed to get past before that he before he would be allowed to to play and to practice and um, and all of that. But that was as of a couple months ago, and I haven't checked in and haven't gotten an answer or an update. So, uh, but if he's not on the floor, like who's going to make shots? And if they can't make shots and they're not good offensively, they can't rely on their defense like they did last year because they don't have Mobamba. So I just I really like the recruiting class. I think that Courtney Ramey is really good. I love the big guy they got coming in, Kamaka Hepa uh, from Barrow, Alaska. Uh, people know what I think of Dylan Ossetkowski. Uh, I'm, I'm shocked. I was shocked to find out he was from Southern California and he's not some redneck <laughs> from West Texas because that's what he looks like. And, you know, I like you the pieces. The cornrows? The cornrows, yeah. That was, that was, that was <laughs> that certainly was a, a look. That was certainly a look. Um you know, but it it also like it would kind of make sense if they ended up like thriving playing under whatever pressing system Shaka puts together because they have a ton of athletes, right? They have a bunch of they're deep and they have a bunch of guys that can run around and make plays. So um, it, it'll be interesting to see how it all comes together. I would lean towards them not making the NCAA tournament personally. This, how much pressure is Shaka in if that happens? I mean, Texas just beat Oklahoma. Do you think anybody cares? That's a good point. That is a very good point. Yeah. So let's move on. I'm going to talk about Texas Tech because I actually really like this uh, this Texas Tech team this season, which is weird because you know they're coming off a year where they were one broken toe away from being the single best story in all of college basketball in a long, long time. If Keenan Evans stays healthy, if he doesn't break his toe, was that against Baylor that he did it? I forget where who it was against. Yeah, they were kind of coy about when exactly that happened, I think, last year because he played through it, obviously. Yeah, I mean, it was. I'm pretty sure it was 
So they were 10 and 3 in the Big 12. They were tied with Kansas for first place in the conference and they still had a home game against Kansas coming up, right? And they were playing at Baylor and in the first half Keenan Evans broke his toe. They lost that game by two. Then they played at Oklahoma State without Keenan Evans and they lost that game by eight. Then they played Kansas at home without Keenan Evans and they lost or maybe he played. Whatever it was, he was not the same guy cuz he he was playing on a broken toe. So they lost to Kansas by two at home, and they lost to West Virginia on the road by 10. And those four games basically ended any chance they had of winning the Big 12. And I'm going to go to my grave saying this. Chris Beard would have won the Big 12 last year if Keenan Evans had not broken his toe. Is that crazy? No, not crazy at all. Yeah, I, Kansas, Kansas was vulnerable, and then obviously they went on to the Final Four, but all year long we talked about how vulnerable they were. Yeah, and that Texas Tech team was just so damn good. They were so good defensively, they were balanced offensively, and they had they had an absolute stud and an absolute killer at the point in Keenan Evans. There's no doubt in my mind that they would have won, uh, won, won that league straight out if he had not gotten hurt. But he got hurt. They lost those four games in a row. I think they ended up finishing third in the conference. Uh, they got a three seed, and they made it to the Elite Eight. So the whole the season wasn't a total loss, but Keenan Evans is gone. Zaire Smith ended up going in and getting drafted 16th by the Suns and traded to the 76ers, which means that you lose two of your three best players from last season, and it kind of puts us in a situation where, like, okay, now what's next? And I think good things are next. I, I like what – Chris Beard has on this roster. I think Jared Culver, you, you hit the nail on the head in the preview, Travis. I think Jared Culver is in line for something of a breakout season. I think that Brandon Francis, who is a former top 30 recruit that transferred into Texas Tech from Florida, is going to be a guy that can kind of step up and have a big year. I think that adding grand transfers, Matt Mooney from South Dakota, where he averaged, I want to say he averaged like 19 points there, and Tariq Owens from St. John's are really going to help. And I think that the additions of Deshaun Corpru, who was a top 50 prospect coming out of high school and is a Juco recruit, and Kavon Moore, who is currently a four-star prospect, uh, is going to help more than people realize. But mostly, they just have Chris Beard back, man. And, and, and I will ride with Chris Beard. I will bet on Chris Beard. I will say that Chris Beard is going to outperform expectations everywhere that he goes, every team that he coaches, and every step along the way. I just don't – the way that he gets his guys to play, the way that he's able to to game plan for teams, the way that he's able to coach them up, I just think that they are going to outperform expectations. And that's why I think, with my bold prediction, is I'm going to say that Texas Tech finishes back in the top five of the league I think they're going back to the NCAA tournament, and I think that Chris Beard is going to be the hottest name in coaching once again. You have been the conductor of the Chris Beard hype train now for, what, two, three years going on? I love him. I love I, I love the program. I love the way that he coaches. I think the guy's awesome. You know, it's it's I'm, I'm all aboard. I'm here. I'm a Red Raider. I'm a Red Raider for life. Let's go. You didn't even give him credit for coaching through a torn ACL last year either. I mean, you had in, injury. I forgot about that. That's right. Yes, he's tough. <laughs> he's toughness. He coaches through pain. He plays through pain. He wasn't. He wasn't injured. He was just hurt. Yeah, I, I think Texas Tech could be pretty decent this year, but I think that they've got to kind of thread the needle where Mooney's got to be really good, Owens has got to be really good, and then I think Culver's got to be a star, which is certainly possible if they get all those guys 
you know, close to maxing out, I think that's what it's going to take for them to have to get back to the NCAA tournament just because they lost so much. And I think while the Big 12 won't be the strongest it's ever been in the last five or six years, it's still going to be pretty difficult to navigate. Travis, they have Chris Beard as a head coach. Of course those guys are going to max out. And if he's got two healthy knees, like, who can stop it? Yes, exactly. See, (laughs) see, now you're starting to learn. All right, let's move on. Travis, talk to me about press – Virginia. Well, if if you were the conductor of the the Chris Beard hype train, I guess I can you know jump aboard the Bob Huggins bandwagon, which continues to roll on uh, after year after year now of this evolution into Press Virginia that has turned West Virginia that looked like maybe they weren't going to be able to compete in the Big Twelve after two seasons of kind of hovering around five hundred to now where you just kind of pencil them in in the top three of the league every year, regardless of who's on the roster. And I think that's the case again this year, despite losing Jevin Carter, an All-American, and maybe the guy that has embodied uh, what Huggins has wanted to do the last five years um, more than anybody on on the rosters that he's had in terms of toughness, uh, in terms of longevity, continuity, stability. Uh, Jevin Carter really did it all for West Virginia and was emblematic of of Press Virginia. But I think they're still going to be good this year. I mean, Issa Ahmad last year really took a step back after he missed the, uh, basically the first half of the season because of academic issues. And I think people forget uh, how highly touted he was coming out of high school. And people forget how good he was his sophomore year. If he can get back to that, I think he's a maybe not a first-team All-Big 12 caliber player, but something close. And he's certainly got uh, a player of that caliber next to him in the front court in Sagaba Kanate, who is, I think, unquestionably the most exciting shot blocker uh, in the country. In the uh, history with, of basketball. I mean, that's cool. I can get with that. I mean, Dikembe Matumbo might have something to say about that in terms of theatrics. No, I, I mean, Kanate is just so much fun to watch defensively. And I know defense cannot always be the most fun or interesting thing to talk about or watch, but he makes it so enjoyable where you look back at to, to what he did against Kansas last year where I think he blocked seven shots and almost all of them were guys trying to challenge him at the rim and he just turned them all away. He's, he's so much fun to watch. Um, and I think when you have those two guys as kind of your cornerstones, you and Huggins on the bench, probably more importantly, you can survive some turnover even when it becomes uh, a guy is important and uh, maybe not transcendent, but – you know, Carter just did so much for them and, like I said, embodied the Press Virginia style. But what I think Huggins has proven over the last five years as they've gone to this style is that the system is the star there. And when you have tough guys that buy in, that'll play defense and grind it out offensively, um, just doing what you need to do to win basketball games, that's a winning formula uh, when you have a little bit of talent. West Virginia has that. So, I don't know what a bold prediction for them is. I think they're more likely to be, I would take their upside more than their downside without thinking twice about it. Um, but just like we've talked about for, you know, what an hour now on this podcast, there's probably a ceiling on what they can do in the big 12. So I'm going to look towards the NCAA tournament. And I think they will be the last team standing from the big 12 in the NCAA tournament. They'll break through and get back to that second weekend which I don't think Huggins has done in you know, maybe since that Final Four run in 2010, if I'm not mistaken. I'd have to go double and check. But I think they make it. Um, 
I think they're a Final Four caliber team with uh, with what they've got and with Huggins. So that'll be my bold prediction uh, for West Virginia. West Virginia was in the Sweet 16 last season. They were in the Sweet 16 the season before that, and they were in the Sweet 16 in 2015. Yeah, I meant past Sweet 16. Okay. <laughs> I knew they were in the Sweet 16. My bad. I meant that that the second week or the second game of the second weekend. My bad. There you go. There you go. Nice save, Travis. We almost believed it. I did. I did mean it. <laughs> um, so my, I agree with you for the most part because Press Virginia is Press Virginia, and he and, and Huggins is going to, he's going to recruit guys that fit into the way that he wants to play, which means he's going to recruit guys that are a little bit crazy, that are tough as hell, that are going to defend, and that have a chip on their shoulder. And those guys, no matter, no matter what they can do offensively, they're going to fit in the way that he wants to play. My thing is that. Their starting backcourt last year, Javon Carter and Daxter Miles, were the guys that came in right when Press Virginia started, right? So they played their four years and, and turned West Virginia into Press Virginia. And the the program has lost, like, quote, program guys before, um, but they've never lost. But in my mind, Javon Carter and Daxter Miles, like, are the program guys, right? They are the guys that you kind of built this entire uh, defense around and I just wonder what they are going to be next season without those kind of th- those dudes to just kind of build everything around you know Brandon Knapper and Vito Bolden are probably going to be just fine but neither of them are as big or as strong or as tough or as crazy or as good defensively as Javon Carter and Dexter Miles were like w- when you were a point guard going up against Javon Carter. You just didn't have a hope, man. You didn't have a prayer of being able to get through that that game without getting fouled every time you stepped over half court and without being harassed and without, you know, having him in your ear the entire time. Like the thing about it, if you talk to people around the Big Twelve, is that like there were times when he would call out opponents' plays for him. Like if he was guarding somebody, uh, like he would. Uh, this, who told me this story? I think it was Ron Everhart, West Virginia assistant. He said he was watching Javon Carter play and say, "Look, man, you got to be out there. Coach is going to pull you if you don't get to the right spot. You got to run around this screen. You got to run off that screen." He knew their plays better than the guys on the other team did. And losing that presence, I don't. I think that the system will be fine. But that presence brought more than just what he was able to do on the court, if that makes sense. So I'm just I, – I, I'm concerned about how they replace the void that is going to be left by Javon Carter mostly, but also Dexter Miles when you put him into that conversation as well. Yeah, I mean, I think you can build that defense. The way that they had it was from front to back in terms of that that press over the last few years. I think you can do it in reverse when you've got a guy – like Kanate in the back, where you can get really aggressive up front because teams are going to be afraid to attack the rim with him back there. And I think when you pair him to Ahmad, to like, I, I just think that it's going to survive uh, to at a high degree. Now it'll have to be different, I think, a little bit than it was with the two guards that you mentioned. But I just think that it's it's malleable enough uh, that West Virginia will just be fine without those guys. Fair enough, Travis. I've kept you here for an hour. I appreciate the time. If you guys want to follow Travis on Twitter, he is at TravisHines21. I don't know why he puts that 21 in his Twitter handle. It's really annoying. It makes it hard for me to remember it every time I say it. You want to follow me on Twitter, go to at Rob Doster. Travis, I appreciate the time. Fix your Twitter handle. Thank you.
some people just know the best rate for you is a rate based on you with Allstate. Not one based on the driver who treats the highway like a racetrack and the shoulder like a passing lane. Why pay a rate based on anyone else? Get one based on you with DriveWise from Allstate. Not available in Alaska or California. Subject to terms and conditions. Rates are determined by several factors, which vary by state. In some states, participation in DriveWise allows Allstate to use your driving data for purposes of rating. While in some states, your rate could increase with high-risk driving. Generally, safer drivers will save with DriveWise. Allstate Fire and Casualty Insurance Company and affiliates, Northbrook, Illinois.